Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Well, in your bulletin on the back side is our next installment in our brief series called Priceless. And today we're going to talk about a priceless gift. As, as Jake said, Christmas is just a few days away. And some of you are probably panicking, getting your, your gift shopping done. Um, some of you are already done. You either bought gifts or made gifts, and, and that's already done. I know for a lot of the ladies, this is not always true, but generally true. Women enjoy the Christmas shopping season much more than the men do. And so when Black Friday comes, or those, those flyers come out with the advertisements, or Kohl's cash, or pennies, you know, certificates, you go crazy over that stuff. And it's almost like there's a party out there, and I need to be part of it. And so you're dashing out there to, you know, to get in the middle of all the sales, making sure you can cash in on the bargain. But a lot of us guys really don't like that time of the year. We don't like the crowds. We don't like the headaches or the hassles. We'd much rather have the remote than the credit card in our hand. And so if, if it's a ball game, if it's a NASCAR race, if it's something, a, 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 a smash em up chase movie, we'd rather watch that. And I think that's just kind of generally true that women are, are much more into that. But, you know, once you get all the gifts, I've realized over the last several years, there's another thing I panic over, and that's how to wrap the gifts. I didn't realize there's a whole psychology involved with the wrapping of gifts. And if you've ever gone to a Christmas party where people could randomly select the gifts that are in the middle or under the tree, you notice the first gifts taken. They're the ones that have the nice crisp folded corners and creases and the nice tape job and the little ribbon around it and the bow on top. And, you know, that's got to be a very special gift. The, the bag over there that says JCPenney's with the bow on it, some guy put that there, and it's probably not the greatest gift. So that ends up sitting there all night long. Nobody wants to pick up that one because how a gift is wrapped conveys a message. Now, this was uh, proven in a study done in 1992 at the Southern Methodist University in Dallas where they actually did a test. And at the conclusion of this experiment, um, the students were given a gift. And half of the students were given... Um, a gift that was wrapped in plastic, the plastic in which it came. You could see through and they could see what the gift was. The other half got the same gift, but it was wrapped up in a nice box, very colorful. And when they received these gifts, they were asked to rate their satisfaction with the gift. And uh, it's probably not a surprise to any of you, the ones who received the very same gift, but it was wrapped real nice, had a much higher satisfaction level than those that got the plain wrappered gift. Because wrapping sends a message. If it's wrapped in, you know, foil wrap, it's got, it's got silver or gold, you, you probably think, oh, that's, that's got to be something that's really nice. If it's wrapped in, like, rustic brown paper and, it's, and, and someone has a homemade um, stamps on it and things, you realize somebody has a very handcrafted gift within that package, that the wrapping says a lot. Now, again, girls are much better doing that, typically, than the guys. And I think that's why you never find a guy that dresses his wife. You find a lot of wives that, that wrap or dress their husbands, especially at Christmas time. You know, honey, you're not going to wear that. You better wear that. That well, doesn't go with that. So I think it's just kind of fitting that the girls are just so much better with wrapping. Wrapping sends a message. And that's why when Jesus was born, we sometimes can focus on the way that gift was wrapped because the Bible says that the, the baby was wrapped in strips of cloth and laid in a manger. And we may think that devalues the gift and it's, it's, it's not very precious, but the, the gift really hadn't been unfolded yet because the gift was actually going to come much later. About 33, 33 years later, that gift was going to be stained in blood, nailed to a cross. And that gift that God gave wasn't just wrapped in strips of cloth. 
that, that, that gift was draped in blood because his blood purchased for us what the Bible calls redemption. The angel told Mary before she gave birth, you will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you're someone that's pretty new to this book called the Bible, you need to know that even though there's 66 letters or books of the Bible, it really is one story. It's a story of redemption. It starts in a place called the Garden of Eden where two individuals lived. And because sin entered the picture there, we find the the trace of human history going through God's promises and the symbolism of the Old Testament to the time when Jesus comes And Jesus lives this life, and he dies a death on the cross, and he's resurrected from the dead. And then people go all over the known world at the time to tell people this message of the risen Lord. And it ends with the book of Revelation, where this one who who died for our sins comes back to reign as king over all for eternity. It's one story of redemption. And sometimes people have said that there's a scarlet thread from the beginning to the end. Because in the Garden of Eden, when man sinned, God took an animal, had the animal slain, so he could have the skin of the animal used for coverings for their, their shameful parts. And we find that, that trail of blood all through Scripture. There's, there's a message of red throughout Scripture. And I want you to think of the word red when you think of redemption. Because the very first three letters of the word Redemption. The Bible truly is a story of redemption. We may oftentimes say something like this, Jesus is the reason for the season. But I have to add this, that you are the reason for the season too, because there really wouldn't be a Christmas if not for you. There wouldn't be a Christmas if you had not done what Adam and Eve done and sinned and caused a need for a Savior to come to die for our sins. So truly, it's not necessarily a good thing, but because we've sinned, we've made the requirement for God to do something to rescue us. And so God sent his one and only son to die for our sins, to be wrapped in red for our redemption. The Bible gives that flow of story from beginning to to end. It's not a story so much of man's search for God. It's really a story of man's failures, but how God intervened to save him. Maybe you're someone who gets confused about church. You hear so many different messages on the media about what churches talk about, but I want you to know this. There is one story, and the story is not just about Jesus. It's about you, and a story puts you in a place where you have a decision to make, and today may be the day you'll make a decision to finally embrace the gift that God has given to you. So before we look at that story, the three movements of that story, I want to ask you if you'd pray with me. Father, thank you for the privilege of looking at your story today. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the simplicity and the beauty and the power of the gospel story. I thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we could worship him this morning. And I can't think of any better way to worship him than to listen to him today and to say yes to what he's calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. The first part of the story involves a a pair in the Garden of Eden who sinned. And because of that sin, incurred a stiff penalty. And you and I, because of our sins, incurred the same kind of penalty. That very stiff penalty, what is that penalty? Your life. That the the consequences of sin is the cost of life. Now, Adam and Eve were this pair that that was created first in the Garden of Eden. God said, you guys can have everything you want. It's just out here, laid out here like a banquet, except there's one thing. Do not eat from the knowledge or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when you do, you will die. And so Satan comes along in the form of a serpent and he whispers to them that God was trying to keep something from them. 
So they go and they take from that tree and they disobey God's command, which really is the essence of sin. Sin is breaking God's law or God's commands. It's going against God's will. And God's commands or God's commandments are an extension of his character. Everything God wants us to do is something that's good for us. It's right for us. It's good for people. So when God says, you know, be faithful to your spouse, God calls us to be faithful because he's a faithful God. When God calls us to be generous to the needy, he does that because God's a generous God. When God calls us to be content with what we have and not be envious, it's because God is, is sufficient for himself. And so we, we, we look at the laws of God and it's an extension of who he is. And when we reject those laws, we're really rejecting God. It's a very personal issue with God. Now, sin also means to miss the mark. And miss the mark means to miss God's target or will for our lives. When you miss the mark, you miss God's best. God wants good. God created us. God wants to provide for us. God wants to carry us. God wants to be there. That's his will for our lives. But when we reject his will, we move ourselves out from that place of favor and blessing in our lives. Sin brings all kinds of, of trouble into our lives. Now, some of you may think, well, I, I, I'm not that bad of a person. I wouldn't call myself a bad sinner. We were with some people yesterday at a Christmas party, and I looked around the room, and I would say it was a room full of good people. And yet, many of us are around good people, but we don't realize the fact that we, we set our standard of goodness by the people around us. And what happens when I get to know this book more, and the more I go to church, and the more I study about Jesus, the more I realize I'm really not that good. I realize that I've got a lot of issues, things that I do, things that I say, things that I think about. I, I realize how stubborn and rebellious my heart can be. And, and when we look at Jesus and who he is and how I compare to him, I fall short. And I know we look at the people like the, the terrorists in the Middle East and go, oh, those guys are bad guys. God, God's got to get those guys. Those guys are going to go to a real awful place. Or we look at the rapists and the child molesters and go, you know, those people deserve to be locked up for life. And we look at the, the business um, um, crooks who ski, steal people's retirement funds and investments. And in. those guys, you got to lock them up. But me, I'm a, I'm a pretty decent person. But not according to Jesus. We fall way short. The Bible says that sin has consequences. And as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, death entered the picture. Death entered into their family. They, they had uh, uh, many children, but two of them were Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. All of a sudden, there's murder brought into the picture. And death affects everything around them. It affects their relationships. It, it affects their, their work. It affects their personal life. They are physically going to die one day. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, meaning you earn it yourself. You work for it, you earn it. It's a wage. It's like a paycheck. Your paycheck for sin is death. The Bible says that we deserve it because of our sins. And the Bible is this shameful record of man's continual rebellion against God. As Adam and Eve had children and the population grew, the Bible says that God became angry, that Every inclination of man's thoughts all the time was evil. And so God called a man named Noah to be a prophet of his day. He told Noah to, to get his family together, to have them board this big boat that he was building called an ark, and to bring aboard that ark uh, a male and female of every um, kind of animal. And when the flood came and wiped out civilization, there was just eight people. And you'd think 
that it was a fresh start. Truly, these eight people who heard God, who followed God, are going to make this a new place. But sin continued to uh, infiltrate their, their lives and their children and their grandchildren. It continued throughout history. And it continues to this day that you and I choose the same kind of path of Adam and Eve. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, me, Adam and Eve, everybody. And you don't suffer for their sins, even though they brought death into the world. You and I suffer for our sins. Ezekiel says that the soul who sins, that is the soul that will die. So you are responsible for your own sins. You make your own choices. We can't blame Adam. We can't even blame our parents. You can't believe the kid with the locker next to you. You can't blame anybody else. We are responsible for our own sins. And there are consequences for those sins. God gives us over to the bondage that comes with it. Sometimes that bondage might be to the actual temptation or sin itself. We might become addicted to pornography or to drugs or to alcohol or to anger or to a number of different things. We get addicted to that. We, we fall under the power of, of, of sin. Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Pretty soon we're, we're submitting to that power over us that sin has. It says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, that there's an evil power within the world, Satan, and we yield ourselves to that power. Listen to the first um, few verses of Ephesians in the second chapter. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us, that's us too, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. You ever find yourself drifting off, having desires and thoughts pull you in a direction opposite of what God wants? There's an evil presence in this world. It's called Satan. And he's whispering, and he's, he's whispering those lies into our, into our head. And we find ourselves submitting to them and being obedient to them. There's a, a kind of a bondage that comes with sin. And that bondage can actually lead to physical bondage. We read through the Old Testament that the Israelites, when they forgot God, we're, we're, we're slaves then of other countries, of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And probably the most famous one was when they were in bondage to Egypt. They were slaves for over 400 years, making bricks in the hot sun so that the um, Egyptians could build their mighty pyramids. And during that time, God heard the cries of his people. He raised up a, a man named Moses to be their deliverer. Now, Moses was called by God to go before Pharaoh and warn Pharaoh that the, these plagues were going to come to cause Pharaoh to open up himself to release the Israelites, to let them go and follow God wherever God would lead. But Pharaoh was stubborn, and it wasn't until the 10th plague came, the, the, the death of the firstborn. And what was going to happen was this death angel would come over the land, and every firstborn male of every family, not only of the humans, but even the animals of every flock, every herd, the firstborn male of all of them would die unless they did this, unless they took a lamb and killed the lamb. Now, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The lamb has to give its life for their redemption. And what happens was they took the blood of the lamb, put it on the door frames of their house. And then they cooked the lamb. They roasted the lamb that night, put it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The men were told to tuck their cloaks in their belts, to wear their sandals at the dinner table, 
Because um, at any moment's notice, when the death angel came, it would be time to go. And this was to be their exodus, their deliverance. And sure enough, that's what happened the night during the, the wailing of the death of the firstborn across the land. The Israelites who had put the blood on the doorpost of their house, they left and the death angel passed over those homes. And from that day forward, God said, you will remember this day for the rest of your lives through the commemoration of a meal of lamb of bitter herbs, remembering your bitter time in Egypt, of the unleavened bread, reminding you of the haste and the hurriedness of that night. And this is to be a Passover. Now, that, that picture of that event was to be remembered every year, never forgotten by the people, because that was a story of redemption, a story that included the, the killing of the lamb. And there was to come another time in the future when a lamb would come to bring them redemption. Sin is costly. It destroys families, breaks up friendships, erodes health, ruins nations. And yet we're reminded that's not the end of the story. For Mary was told, you'll give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus comes. Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus pays a steep price. And what was that price? His very life. Jesus gave his life for our sins. One of the most touching parts of the Christmas season is the sacrifice made to provide a gift for someone else. There's actually a family I heard about this week in our church. They have chosen to give up their Christmas. They've got three young kids, and they've chosen to give up their Christmas to buy Christmas for somebody else. Isn't that amazing? I mean, those are the stories that really touched my heart. Uh, the sacrifice someone's willing to make for someone else. I think back over the gifts given me, and, and one of the most simple yet profound gifts I ever received was from my little sister. She was about um, five or six at the time. She had bought gifts for mom and dad, and she had 15 cents left. So she went to the store and bought a balsa wood airplane. Remember, remember those little things? Went to the five and dime store, got a balsa wood airplane, a balloon, and a stick of bazooka bubble gum for 15 cents. Now, when I looked at that, at first I was, I was so disappointed, like, why bother? It's just a, a few little penny items. And then I realized she, she made sure every penny counted because she wanted to give me something. And her sacrifice was enormous. See, the, the price of a gift says a lot. Today, as you leave, I think the truck's still out there. There's a Bonfies a bloodmobile truck. And today, some of you will be going out there and you're going to lay down on a table and have a knife put it... Or, <laughs> <laughs> They're nicer than that. A needle, a little needle, a little needle put in your arm, and they'll draw blood out. And by drawing blood out, you are, you are giving life to someone. Because when someone has a major surgery, or they, um, they're dealing with cancer treatment, or there's been a major loss of blood in an accident, they need blood to survive. I mean, blood isn't something you can go and mix chemicals together and put it in your body. You need to take blood from a living person to give it to another person so they can live. And in a very real sense, blood is life. Blood is life. And your blood keeps people alive. And so your gift of blood will bless someone with the gift of life. And we know that because when someone, you know, like a soldier dies on the battlefield, we say that he, he, he lost his blood or he gave his life because they're kind of the same thing. Blood equals life. When Jesus died on the cross and gave his blood for us, what was he giving? His life, because blood is in the life. It's a precious gift. I love how Peter writes of this in 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The precious, the priceless blood of Christ. And he was the lamb, like the Passover lamb, had to be a a perfect firstborn lamb. Jesus, the firstborn son of God, perfect, without sin, who was sacrificed. His blood was shed. Whoever is covered, in a sense, by his blood, death passes over. Not not, not necessarily physical death, but you'll be raised from physical death. You'll have eternal life if you trust in Christ. I looked at the word precious to see in the Bible what it typically is, is connected to. And most of the time, it's connected to stones like, like um, amethyst and emerald and, and even gold and silver, onyx, turquoise. No wonder uh, stores like K's and Jared's and um, uh, Hellsberg's and um, Zales, all these stores say, if you really treasure someone, you'll get them a precious stone, Right? But there's nothing more precious than the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Jesus that pays for our sins. In fact, a lot of old hymns say things like this. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The word redemption, which we often just kind of connect with salvation, actually comes from a Greek word that at the time of day was used in the marketplace for the selling of a slave. When someone went to the marketplace and there were slaves for sale... They would see someone and say, I want to buy him, or I want to buy, buy her. I want them to, to serve me, and they would pay a price so that person would then belong to them. Redemption refers to that idea of, the, of a transaction in the marketplace. Another word that's often translated redemption is also sometimes translated ransom. When it speaks of Jesus and the price paid to free us from our sins. And so in a very real sense, redemption means the deliverance, purchase, by a great price. Jesus offers us deliverance by the payment of a great price, his blood. In the book of Revelation, John writes of this when he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, how? By his blood. Now, why is that such a a steep price? If you saw the mass of humanity, there's some people you would probably make a sacrifice for, but I got to be honest, there's probably a lot of people that you encounter and I encounter that I says, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sacrifice for that person. I definitely would not sacrifice one of my kids for that person. Never. And yet, yet God sacrifices one and only son for the worst of sinners in this world. And my wife likes to watch a show sometimes, called, I think it's called um, Pawn Stars. Pawn Stars, okay? Let's be real clear. And what they do is they, they go into this um, pawn shop. Some of you have seen that, right? There's, a, there's, there's the guy behind the counter and they come up with all these objects and and say, you know, uh, here's something I think is pretty valuable. Would you buy it? And this guy came in the other day on the show. He had a, a book. And he offered it to the, the owner there and says, um, I'd like $750 for it. And the guy says, well, I don't know if I'm going to pay you that much. I'm going to have my, my guy look at it. And the guy is a guy who, who knows antiquities and, and knows authentic autographs and, and printing and all that kind of stuff. Knows fakes from the real. So he's looking through this book. And he goes, well, this is really nice condition. And he says, yeah, I can tell by the, the ink and everything, this is authentic. This is of the time period. This is as old as it says it is. And, he, and the guy says, well, what do you think it's worth? He says, well, I think this book's worth about $5,000. And the, the guy who brought in says, okay, um, I'm going to sell this to you for $4,000. <laughs> the guy, wait a minute. You just came in here 
a few minutes ago and said you wanted to sell for $750. I'll give you your $750. He goes, no, not now. It's worth more. See, the value of something is determined by how much someone's willing to pay for it, what it goes for on the market. And when you think of that, I want you to think of this. When God's trying to determine how valuable you are to him, he says, I'm willing to pay the steepest price, the blood of my son, to buy you freedom. You might look in the mirror and say, nobody cares about me. I'm worthless. I'm a failure in my life. And God says, don't you, don't you devalue yourself like that. I paid the highest price for you. That's what God thinks of each one of us. And then when the Bible talks, as we looked last week, we are made in the image of God. We are priceless. If you ever question that, then, then, then here's another reason to believe that you're priceless. God paid a steep price to get you back home. That's what he thinks of you. That's how God values you so much. And in order to do that, Jesus had to take our place, had to take all the shame, the guilt of our sins upon himself, had to ultimately die on the cross for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus took, Jesus took the, the, the shame and the guilt of the child abuser. Jesus took the shame and the guilt of the drug dealer. Jesus took the shame and the guilt of the religious hypocrite. He took all of it upon himself, suffered, died. Why? So we could have life. Jesus took our place. When you really grasp that, all of a sudden you feel so humbled about your life. You know, there's a man in the Bible, his name's Paul. And Paul looked at his life, and he was a very religious man, grew up going to church. And yet he hated people who were religious fanatics, who were, who were really excited about Jesus. And he began to pursue them and lock them up and even kill some. And when he really came face to face with who Jesus was and how much Jesus loved him, he was so humbled by it that he wrote a letter to a young man named Timothy. And he says, Timothy, um, understand this truth. In fact, here's one thing that, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And I think the closer you get to Jesus, pretty soon you start to feel like, no, no, Paul, you're not the worst. I was the worst because I don't deserve what I get from him. Jesus died for every street corner hooker, for every dope pusher, every cheating businessman, envious house uh, homemaker, for arrogant movie stars and athletes, to home hormone enraged high school students, internet hackers, porn producers, verbally vulgar God said his son for each one of us. And the fact that Jesus was willing to sit down with tax collectors and prostitutes and eat with them shows that he loves the person, but he died for the sin. And he loves you and he loves me. That's why Jesus was willing to give his life. The Bible is not a story of how good we are. The Bible is a story of how gracious God is. And that's the message of Jesus. Jesus gave his life for us. Yes, our sins deserve the stiff penalty, our very lives. But Jesus loves us so much, he paid the steep price, his own life. But the story doesn't end there. There's one other movement that involves you and it involves me. And here it is, that you've been given a stunning present, new life. God has a gift for you. It's called new life. In this season of Christmas, we think a lot about presents we're even willing to sit on the lap of a jolly old fat man in a red suit and tell him what we'd like for Christmas. I mean, think about this guy. Um, when I grew up, I, I always was told that I better watch out. I better not cry. I better not pout. I'm telling you why. 
Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. You know what else? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. You know, does it sound like God? Who's watching me when I'm sleeping? Who knows everything that I do? God does. So is Santa Claus kind of like God? Well, if we ever compare Santa Claus to God, there's one huge difference. Santa Claus gives good gifts to good people. Bad people get coal in their stocking. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus gives good gifts to bad people. Isn't that amazing? You know, I think back when I was a kid, there's times I stole from my dad's piggy bank. There's times I'd sneak into the cupboards and and sneak things I wasn't supposed to get into, the snacks that my parents would hide. There's times I'd go over to the grocery store and I would shoplift snacks that we couldn't afford to get. And you know what? I deserved coal under the Christmas tree. And to be honest, there weren't a whole lot of gifts under that tree anyway, but that's okay because I didn't deserve a whole lot of gifts. And the truth is, neither do you. You deserve coal this Christmas. If God were like Santa. But the truth is, he's not. He's gracious. He gives us an incredible gift called life, called eternal life with Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, we read this before, just the first part, but I want to read the whole verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God. It's a present that he holds out that that you have the opportunity to receive. It's a gift that God gives to you and gives to me to rescue us from our sins. You are to have a a son, Mary was told, and you call it to call him Jesus because he will save his people. And we are those people from our sins. I've never had difficulty believing God existed. You know, I grew up going to church. I, I went at Christmas Eve. I went Easter. Actually, I went through the, week, uh, through the year too. And I've never had trouble believing God existed. But there's a problem with that. We don't simply need a God that exists. We need a God that cares. And some of you, you, you don't struggle believing there's a God that exists. You just don't know that God personally. And you don't have a relationship with the God that loves you. When Jesus was on earth, he mingled with the worst of people. He, he one time went to a, a man's house, a man named Zacchaeus, who was uh, really a crook. He was a tax collector. And after spending some time with this man, this man found salvation in Jesus. And he came out of his house so excited about this new life that he had in Christ. And then Jesus told the audience, for the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. You and I are lost. You may not, you may not know you're lost, but you're lost. Sometimes you get lost when you don't know where to go, but sometimes you're just lost because I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn in life. You know, I've, I've been lost before. There was a the time um, when our kids were very little, we wanted to go out to the Pacific Ocean. And so our daughter was, you know, about kindergarten age, and her son was around two years of age. We went out to the ocean. And I was excited to get out into the water. Now, even the ocean in the summer is a little bit chilly, but I went out there up to my waist and, and in where the waves are kind of like, you know, just beat against my body a little bit, had my son up in my arms here. And he had a little diaper on and, and getting his toes in the water. And I walked along the, 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 the shoreline there and seeing this mass of people. I mean, the beach is just covered with, with um, bodies. 
And there's neon and there's pink bathing suits and there's, there's uh, coolers and there's it's just people everywhere. Well, I'm walking along there and I turn around and while those waves are hitting against me, I notice that there's like a mini tsunami coming. There's this huge wave I, wave I can see it coming. And I realize I've got to get into more shallow water. But you know what's up to here? When you're in water that's this, this deep, you cannot move very fast. So I'm like this slow motion, like, yeah! And I look, and here's this wave coming over, and when you get hit by a wave, it slams you. It slammed me down to the, to the sand as the water was receding. And I didn't, didn't share this part of the story, but at that time in my life, I wore glasses all the time. Since then, I've had laser surgery, and I can see pretty good for about 15 feet, uh, good enough to drive, but um, wear glasses at night. So here I, here I am, and, my, and uh, when I go down in the water, I hold my son up because I don't want him to get in the water, so I'm holding him up, and my glasses fall off. Now, now, the bad thing when you lose glasses is you can't see where they are because you don't have your glasses. So I can't see where they are, and I'm panicking. So I'm going like this, doing like a dance out here, going, where are those, where are those glasses? I can't see them. Hold my son up, and uh, I don't find them. Now I'm in a, in a real bind because we're on vacation. We live in Arizona. We're in, we're in California. I cannot drive without my glasses. But worse, I can't even get out of the water. I don't know where my wife and daughter are. So I look out there and I see these little, I squint and I see little neon bikinis and all kinds of stuff. I'm looking out there and I said, oh, great. I don't know where they went. We moved down the shoreline. I have no idea how to find them. So I'm looking out. So I just stay put and I just say, Jolie! Jolie! I'm sure there's people inside like that. Look at that grown man cry out there. Golly. That's sad. And, uh, and she hears me, and I come over, and I say, I lost my glasses. By the way, I, f- I keep forgetting to tell people that we never did find them. And we had to have someone break into our house back in Arizona and get into a drawer in a, in a, in a, in a cabinet to find an old pair and FedEx into California so I actually could drive the car home um, so she didn't have to do all the driving. But, you know, when you're lost, sometimes all you can do is stay where you are and then just call out. And the Bible says... That spiritually, that's a good thing. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, it's humbling, but it's a beautiful thing when you finally recognize, I am lost. I don't know how to get my act together with God. I don't know the way to heaven. But I know who does. I'm going to call on that name. And so the Bible says when you're, when you're willing to acknowledge the sin in your life and own up to it, that is the start toward the path of forgiveness. In the book of 1 John, John writes about the journey we take and how we need to walk in the light. The light is just honesty about ourselves in our relationship with God. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God is willing to forgive our sins, but he says, first, you've got to acknowledge you've got a sin issue. Admit to me what I already see. Quit trying to think you're better than you are. God, God is willing to forgive our sins. I was reading of a lady. Um, she was a Catholic woman who claimed to have these visions of Jesus. And the, the, the archbishop talked to her and said, you know, I, I'm questioning whether this is real or not, so next time you encounter Jesus, I want you to ask him something. Ask Jesus to tell you the last sins I, I told him about at my confession. 
He goes, if he does that, you let me know. So about 10 days later, she calls him up and says, um, Bishop, I had another vision. He goes, all right, let's meet. So they met together, and he says, okay, did you ask Jesus the question? She says, I did. And did he tell you what the sins were that I confessed at my last confession? And she said, sir, he said he couldn't remember. Jesus forgets our sins when they're washed away. He says, I'll remember them no more. They're removed from me as far as the east is from the west. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been, but God wants to forgive you. And that feeling of cleansing comes in a powerful way. Have that shame, the guilt washed away. I think that's the power even of the symbolism of baptism. Just like a bath, you go into the water and whatever that shame and guilt is, I talked to Marlon out in the foyer before he was baptized today. I said, Marlon, what's brought you to this place? He says, I want a fresh start. There's nothing more beautiful than to come up out of the water for that fresh start. It says in the book of Romans that we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the, glory, raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live what? A new life. A new life. The gift of a new life is offered to you today. Yes, sin has a stiff penalty. It's going to cost you your life. But Jesus loves you so much, he paid, he paid the steep price. His own life given for you. And he offers you and he offers me this t- amazing, stunning present. New life in Christ. A fresh beginning. A new start. I want to close sharing you a story that happened this past summer. My wife and I went to Tinseltown up on Powers to go to the movie theater. And I forgot what the movie was, but it was very crowded that night. It's hard to find a parking space. So I dropped my wife off in front of the theater so she could go and get the tickets. And I drove around back and had a hard time finding an open spot, but I finally found one. And as I walked toward the theater during this evening time, I came along the sidewalk. If you've been near that theater, there's a restaurant on the corner, AI Sushi. And so I get where that restaurant is, and I look in this well-lit area. There's a pink shoe, a little tiny pink shoe sitting all by itself. And so I pick up this shoe, and I went, oh. First, I wanted to just go and hang it from, my, uh, from the mirror in my car. It was so, so adorable. But then it made me think of this. There's a little girl out there who's missing her pink shoe, the little princess shoe. She's missing it. And I want to get it back to her, but I don't know how. I don't know where she is. And so I thought, you know, the best thing I could do is probably just put it right back on the sidewalk, hoping that the family would come around and, and look for it and find it there. And just as I'm stooping over to set this shoe down on the sidewalk, um, this family comes walking out of the AI sushi, and there's this tall soldier. He's still in his camo from work that day at Fort Carson. He's with his wife. He's with another couple. Looks like her parents or his parents. But he's got in his arms this adorable little girl in a sweet little dress, dressed like she's on a date with Daddy. And she's got these cute little white leggings. And I notice as I look at her legs draped over his arm that at the end of one of those legs is a little pink shoe. And I says, could this be? My heart's starting to kind of race a little bit. I I look at the other foot and there's nothing there. So I walk up to this man and I said, sir, I believe this belongs to your daughter. They didn't even know she was missing her shoe. But I felt like Prince Charming finding Cinderella because I had what she needed. You know, the Bible says that Jesus has something you've lost. 
And some of you don't even know you've lost life, but you have. You've been kind of plugging along day after day, thinking that you're okay. And Jesus says, why are you limping? I have something for you. He truly is our Prince Charming, or as the Bible says, the Prince of Peace. And he has a gift for you. And he offers it to you, asking you, will you take this? Will you take the life I have to give you? That's why Jesus came at Christmas. Some of you needed to hear that today. Some of you actually are here in this place on this day because God wanted you above all people to know this truth, that he loves you, that he gave his life for you, and he offers you a gift, the best gift you'll get any Christmas of your life, the gift of new life. And so in just a moment, we're gonna have our, I'm gonna ask our prayer partners just to be available up front here, elders, staff, leaders, to pray with anyone who today wants to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you've been someone who's kept Jesus in the distance. Maybe you've known he's existed. You've just never said yes to him. But today is the day you can receive that gift. You may be in the middle of a row. You may may be here with friends. They'll wait for you. Just make your way out of the aisle when we stand to sing. Come up here. Let us celebrate. Let us pray with you. If you need to be baptized, we'll schedule your baptism. But don't leave this place without knowing that Jesus has that gift for you. So let's stand right now. We're going to sing an old song about the blood of Jesus, how it washed us clean of sins. If today is a day when you need to say yes to Jesus, come up, we'd love to pray with you. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.